When someone goes to prison, it can destroy the family left behind, and even more so when no one really knows what happened. But then, what does the family do years later when that family member returns? The story of Pastor Martin Thomas, the murder he committed, and his quest to make his life worthwhile. That's on this episode of Criminal Injustice. Criminal Injustice is a listener-supported project. Become a member at patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. Welcome to Criminal Injustice, and welcome to this, our ninth season. I'm David Harris, still your all-purpose justice nerd, geek, and guide to all things in the criminal legal system, and still so, so glad for that day job at the University of Pittsburgh School of Law. Murder mysteries have long been the stuff of crime novels, going back to Agatha Christie and Raymond Chandler. Most often, these stories tell the tale through the character of the police officer, the detective, the private investigator. The last 10 years have seen a resurgence of the related genre of true crime. On cable television, the streaming services, and all over the world of podcasts, these stories seem to have overwhelmed almost everything else. Among those, of course, was the serial podcast from This American Life, investigating the guilt of Adnan Syed in the death of his high school classmate years before. Sarah Koenig, the lead journalist and voice of that first season of Serial, was our guest here in episode 26 in our second season. Most of the true crime offerings out there are right out of the tried-and-true whodunit approach. Who killed the victim? Or perhaps was it this person or that one who killed the victim? Or is this person who was convicted years ago for this crime guilty at all? But what if the question wasn't who done it? What if we know who done it, but what we don't know is why? What if the person who committed the crime seemed like about the least likely killer or felon you could imagine, and yet admitted he had committed a terrible crime and then refused to say why? He refused to explain it to anyone, even those who would defend him? What would make a person admit guilt openly and without reservation and yet never explain himself to those closest to him or anyone else? This is the mystery that begins a forthcoming film called A Break in Belonging, and it concerns Pastor Martin Thomas, who killed a man in 19. 96. Yes, I said Pastor Martin Thomas. Here's audio of Pastor Thomas speaking as part of that film. I was going to prison. I had killed a guy that changed my whole life. One moment I was a law-abiding person who had never had a parking ticket or done anything wrong at all. The next moment, a man was dead. I never explained to them what happened. I never talked to the judge or the prosecutor or my attorney at all about what happened that day. Did I deserve a 50-year sentence? Um, Yeah, I think so. I was guilty. The film, however, goes much further. 
What happens when this man leaves prison after many years and tries to connect to the five sons he left behind? What kind of life can he create, both with his sons, for himself, and for the world? That may be an even more intriguing question, it turns out, than why he did it. We've got the full story here behind the film because we've got the filmmaker here with us. Shirley Vernay Williams is a director and Emmy-nominated producer who has overseen episodes of television series such as History Channel's Alone and American Restoration and stories produced for various series for Refinery29, including Shady and Anomaly, which generated millions of online views. In 2017, she post-produced the documentary film Intent to Destroy with the award-winning director Joe Berlinger. The film premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival and was nominated for an Emmy for Outstanding Historical Documentary. In 2019, she produced eight short films for the New York Times and a documentary for the Annenberg Space of Photography. And she kept it up with a slew of short films in 2020. Williams is head of strategic planning and partnerships for Hue You Know, an organization designed to build community, provide mentorship, and foster employment opportunities for black, indigenous, people of color professionals in media in order to boost diversity, inclusion, equity, and belonging. She's here to talk with us about a break in belonging about Pastor Martin Thomas. We have a link to the trailer up on our website for you. It will be out during 2021. The film carries forward a number of the questions we've been asking this season about re-entry into society after incarceration and so much more. Director Shirley Vernay Williams, welcome to criminal injustice. Thank you, thank you, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. I'm so glad to have you. Now this project centers on a man named Martin Thomas, a pastor. What brought this to your attention and why did you as a filmmaker wanna tell this story? I love that question. I love it. I also love to answer that question. So. Um, it's one of my favorite stories to tell. I was in church one day and I was, uh, I think it was, it was Sunday service afterwards. And my minister was, um, was getting the, the congregation excited about this event that we do each year called our Northeastern Lectureship, where we have ministers from all over the country who are really, really good at ministry, and they come to New York City, Harlem, uh, and they preach on a specific topic to like edify the church, uh, um, encourage the people. So Martin was coming to New York to 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 preach. He was going to be one of our highlight preachers. Wow. And yeah, so our minister is in the pulpit, and he's like, Martin Thomas is coming back. To Harlem for the first time in 23 years. And at the time, I have been a member of this congregation for about um, 
13 years and I had never heard Martin's name. So I'm, I was very familiar with a lot of uh, a lot of people in ministry and preachers. And I never heard Martin's name and everyone in the congregation. Well, more so the, the older people, they had very big reactions to hearing Martin Thomas was coming back to Harlem for the first time in 23 years. So I went back and I asked my mom, because she has history at the same congregation, who was Martin Thomas? Um, and she told me that he was a preacher who uh, went to jail for murder like two decades ago, and she was shocked. So I went, I heard Martin speak. Like, I was like, I, I need to, I need to put my eyes on him. I, I had, I grew sure. up in the church. I, um, I never, I never had heard of a, a minister who served time in prison 20 something years for murder. So I wanted to go and I wanted to hear him speak. I went, I heard him speak. I was just like, this man is just, he was so captivating, so big, so bold. He talked about his prison experience within his sermon, but not from a place of like, woe is me, um, or from a, a place of victimhood. It was it was with responsibility and accountability. Um, it was it was just so big. It was so captivating. And then I started doing research on him. Um, and the more I, I learned about Martin, the more I just became maybe obsessed with his story, uh -huh. maybe. Um, and then I, I reached out to, I reached out to him on Facebook, but this was just a few months in, into Martin's release. So he wasn't very tech savvy. He, he didn't really work Facebook because he, he, he was there wasn't any Facebook when he went in. There was no Facebook when he went in. I mean, Martin was telling me stories about how he had to how he had to learn how to pump gas and how to use the um, use the soda machines at fast food restaurants because everything was just so different when 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 he was before prison, right? Right, right. So, um, so his wife was managing his uh, his Facebook account and me and her started to build a relationship first. And then from there, she connected me to um, to him and then our, our relationship started to develop. And um, I think there's a lot of things that, you know, make me very fitting for this story um my my grandfather was friends with Martin more so on a on oh. mentor yeah hmm. so my grand and I didn't know that until me and Martin started to build a relationship my granddad was a minister god rest his soul uh and he knew my he knew Martin Martin knew my granddad uh Martin is Martin comes from a singing family although I was not blessed with the pipes of a Whitney Houston. Uh, I come from a singing family. So Martin's family, my family would cross cross paths and they knew each other because they had music um, uh, in common. Oh, so um, no wonder it's so compelling. I get it now. So this is a, this is an incredible story. I mean, this is a man who grows up in the fifties. He's got a very stable sort of home life. 
Uh, he begins uh, his career as a minister, and he's running a church in Kansas City, very successful, very compelling guy. And he also has a family, five beautiful sons. And all of this you can see even in the trailer that you put up. And I'd invite the listeners to go take a look at that trailer at some point. Um, you can see the pictures of the boys. Um, and you can really see how they were part of the ministry. I recall one picture where they're all standing up together at the pulpit with their father. And they form some kind of a singing group or a musical group, don't they? Yeah, so they all have beautiful voices, Martin and all five of his children. So um, once Martin figured out that his kids uh, had singing abilities, uh, they first were in a music group with Martin and they sang in the church. They did local touring. Um, and then as the boys grew older, um, Martin stepped out of the group and the boys uh, formed their own group. They were called MT5. Um, they were discovered through, through Martin. Martin had a big hand in this. He was a boys manager. Um, they were discovered by Gerald Levert, who is the son of the OJ's, uh, singer, Eddie Levert. Oh, I knew I recognized that last name. Yeah. And, and Gerald, uh, had a big hand in shaping and cultivating the boys as artists. Um, and then, they got a, uh, a really big opportunity to audition for Clive Davis when Clive. Oh, Clive Davis. Mm -hmm. yeah. When they were, when he was running uh, Arista records mm -hmm. um, and he had a crazy slate. He had Whitney Houston. He had Tony Braxton. He had Babyface, and the boys auditioned for Clive. They said uh, Clive was crying, listening to him, listening to them sing. And he signed them right on the spot. Wow. So, yeah, these are uh, very talented boys. Right. So they're they've got their musical thing going. And Martin, the pastor, the father, he's out with them doing management work for them. Has he left the church at that point or he's still pastoring the church? Um, there was a point in time where he was doing both. Um, he was he was he spent 22 years as a minister of a church in Kansas City, and then his son's careers were taken off and, and flying through the roof. And then um, when Martin's father died, that's when Martin, you know, in response to, to, to grief and, and experiencing trauma and pain, it became too much to bear and too much to manage. So he, uh, he, he stopped preaching and um, focused on managing the boys. And he went out with them and here it comes. At some point in 1996, he's out doing that job. He's in the state of Indiana and something that nobody could have expected based on Martin, his life, what he did, his family life. It's totally out of the blue and unaccountable. He kills a man. I, I mean, you know, when you hear that, you just, you kind of like, what, that guy? And this changes everything, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, it changed everything. Um, you know, his one of his sons told me on the phone, he said, we got a call from 
a church member. They were living in Cleveland, Ohio, and they got a call from a church member in uh, Kansas City because when Martin stopped preaching, he relocated the boys to Cleveland, Ohio to continue to being developed uh, with Gerald Levert Musically. Mm-hmm. living in Cleveland, Ohio. So um, his son told me he got a call from a, um, a, a Kansas City church member that said, hey, your father has just been arrested for murder. And they couldn't believe it. They were my, my, like, my dad? Like, no, he he wouldn't even harm a fly, let alone be, be arrested for murder. Right. This uh, has got to be some kind of mistake, I'm sure, is what they were thinking. Oh, and yeah. yet comes the time to go to court. And Martin says, no, I did it. Well, uh, Martin wouldn't say anything. He's, he stayed silent for 17 months. He stayed silent. And then 17 months into being silent, then he took a guilty plea. Right. And gets a sentence of 50 years and off to prison. And he never, if I understood the trailer and and your materials, he never explained why this happened. He took full responsibility, but he never explained to anybody why this happened, why he ended up doing this. Yeah, yeah. He he accepted the 50-year guilty plea. At the time when he took the 50-year guilty plea, which I find very interesting, he did not know uh, actually, no one knew that none of the fa- none of his family, uh, uh, nobody knew that he would be eligible for parole after 23 years served. So he accepted a 50 year guilty plea as a 40 year old man thinking, if I live to see 90, then I'll see the outside world. Oh, my word. Oh, my word. So he thinks he's going to be serving 50 years and he goes into prison and in prison. He rediscovers his ministry. And from what I read, doing some research on him, he was a very effective minister within this very tough prison, the Indiana State Prison. Oh, yeah. Indiana State Prison has a huge population of lifers, um, people who have... um, not to say that this is how they are defined, but just giving an insight of the population, but people who have uh, have created some very heinous crimes. Um, so Martin, you know, when me and Martin talk about it, he's like, I was the choir boy. I was the church boy. <laughs> you know, and any an event happened that led him to to prison. Um, so when he was in prison, you know, he went from, he stopped preaching and he went, he went from not preaching at all to then becoming the full-time minister of the prisons, um, of the prison's temple. And he grew that organization, that church organization to be one of the largest organizations in the prison, like larger at some point, larger than any gang or any other institution. And he was partnering with the, the, um, partnering with the, um, the, the administration there to help lifers with rehabilitation program, the elderly, um, people who were preparing to re-enter society, setting them up for success. So he did a lot of great things in prison. 
It's amazing. You know, he says in the trailer that he, you know, he's not, he's not happy or proud or good with how he got there, but for the work he did there, he said, I could have volunteered to do that. It, and, and I took that to mean the work was its own honor and reward. And he was glad to be doing it, though not glad for how he got there. So he serves 23 years and then he is eligible for parole, it turns out, and he comes home himself. He reenters. Now, how at this point, how old are his boys and how do they take this? So when Martin went to prison, now this is maybe 26 years ago. Uh, his sons were ages 12 to 20. So if we do the math, his oldest son right now is 47. Martin Jr. is 47 years old. Um, yeah, and he he re-entered society, and it was like you know when his when his when he went into prison, his youngest son, who's 12, was like really didn't get um, the experience with a father the way that the the other children did. So um, Martin had to, and still is, doing a lot of work to rebuild his relationships with his sons. Let's take a quick break here. We're with filmmaker Shirley Vernay Williams. Uh, she's behind a forthcoming film called A Break in Belonging, uh, the story of Pastor uh, Martin Thomas. And it is a fascinating tale. And we're going to talk about the re-entry experience on the other side of this break. Stay with us. Hi, everyone. David Harris here with you for Criminal Injustice. And our guest is filmmaker Shirley Vernay Williams. She is behind the forthcoming film, A Break in Belonging, about the incredible life of Pastor Martin Thomas. And Shirley, before the break, we were talking about uh, what had happened with Pastor Thomas, what led him to prison, and then he comes home and his children, after 23 years, the youngest, who had been 12 when he went in, uh, is now, well, just as you said, do the math, 37. So how does he restart his life? And this is where I think this will really connect with a lot of our listeners. We've been doing a series uh, this season on reentry, which we started uh, by talking to a couple of people here in the Pittsburgh area who are experiencing this for themselves. And what we learned from them and from the others we've talked with is how incredibly difficult it is to re-enter society. I mean, you were talking earlier about having to learn to use a new kind of a gas pump and there was no Facebook and so forth. These are just the small things. I mean, how does he reconnect with his family? What is that work like? And what kind of work does he set for himself now that he's out? Yeah, you know, Martin was Martin was really blessed when he was uh, released from prison because um the day that he was released, he married um, his wife, Carolyn, um, and Carolyn uh, used to work in the prison system. So she she knew um, she knew the challenges that were ahead for him, and she was able to help guide and support 
um, and and to be what was needed for him to adjust. He's kind of got his own in-house expert. Right, exactly, exactly. Um, But, you know, for a lot of people, unlike Martin, you know, some people don't have housing. They don't have food. Oh, my gosh. They, they don't have utilities. They don't have clothes. Nothing. They don't have a phone. Martin was, was he has a unique situation. He, he wasn't like a lot of people. Um, and he was really set up for success. Also, Martin was like, he was a person who shouldn't have been in prison. He was, he's a doctor. He has a doctorate. He's a, he's a, he was a minister. He was a working man. He was, when he went into prison, he had a five hundred thousand uh, dollar recording contract with Arista Records back in the in the nineties. So this was a man who, even if he didn't have Carolyn, he still would have been set up for success because he was he was very educated, had a huge family of support, you know, and he is driven and and purposeful and intentional. But you know, he, with him knowing that he is an anomaly, which is what the judge told him on the day of his sentencing, um, that there are other others, his brothers that were left behind. Um, and like so many other people, men and women who transition out of prison who need to need help to be set up for success. So he established this organization, Foresight Forgivers, and they run this home called the Nazareth Man Home. It's a transitional house, but the, the, the thing is, the specialty is that you, you don't have to transition out. You can stay in as long as you need with uh, rent paid, utilities paid, food provided, um, as long as you need, as long as you're doing the right thing, staying out of trouble, uh, pushing forward uh, for success. So you know, that's, that has now four years post Martin's release that has now become his, um, his purpose, his motive, his, uh, his reasoning and, and his life's work. Yeah. So he's got a purpose in the larger world, assisting people to succeed uh, as they come out of prison and re-enter. And he's got a unique sort of perspective, this idea that you don't, there's no date upon which you expire and you have to leave. You're there until you're ready to leave. Uh, I wonder how it's been on the other side of his life. How has he been able or not been able to reconnect with his sons? What what do they think? Because, you know, in the trailer, you really get the feeling that he feels his, you know, he feels terrible about what he did, but his almost his greater regret is having missed yeah. his sons growing up and have, and not being there for them. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like he says in the trailer, he says it was his constant source of pain, constant, continuous, ate at him. Um, and you know, it's been a different journey for every son because everybody's different. Everybody uh, is on their own journey, on their own path. Everybody processes hurt and pain differently. Um, you know, so for some, and and life has happened for some. You know, of one course. of sons, he is a father now. He's a husband. Um, and he has a different level of sympathy and connection with his father and understanding uh, knowing the events that happened, knowing who his father is and know, and, and understanding who he is as a man, you know? So 
each son um, has a different response. They all love their father. Um, to this day, when I talk to them, you know, so many of them say, my father, even in all this, my father is still my, my hero. One of, one of his sons told me, my father is the greatest man I know, even in all of this. So mm. they still have a, a, a high level of respect, love, admiration, but still, um, they all know that there's a lot, a lot of work to do, a lot to process, a lot of pain to deal with. Um, and they're all on their different journeys and it looks different. The relationship looks different for each, each one. Has Martin ever revealed to either to them or to anybody else or to you why the killing took place? So I know um, to this day, um, his, his children, his family, um, they, they don't know. Not yet. Not yet. Hmm. And they accept his returning and his love without knowing that. You know what's so interesting? Um, um, Martin's sons grew up in a in a home. You have to think about culture, right? Because I think a lot of a lot of people when they hear that, they immediately react to. They're like, "What? That's crazy! I would never." But if you think about culture, Martin's Martin. Martin raised his children where you don't question me. I am the authority. Uh-huh. I am superior. You, I'm the father. You're the child. You, you do as I say. You, you. you Martin's old school, mm-hmm. right? Um, and when when he got arrested, um, you're not gonna question. First of all, they all and the, and for them, they're like, this is this couldn't even happen. This is my dad. This is the pastor. Like the, he wouldn't harm a fly. So that one, we're not gonna question because we know this is this can't be true. This has to be false. But two, like in our family culture, we don't ask questions. We don't question our authority. Yeah, it's- and and families all have different cultures like that. I see what you mean. Yeah. And that was his, that was how he raised his children. That was the culture. Um, Martin is a very dominant uh, man, a dominant force. And when he speaks, you listen and you obey. Um, and and I've, I've seen it with my own eyes. Um, very gentle, loving, compassionate man, but still very a, a force, a big force. Uh, so, you know, and, and to this day, when, you know, when I've talked to his sons about that, they're like, look, if he tells us, he tells us. If he doesn't, he doesn't. Um, so, mm. I, and, and, and I, I think like all of us know, in order to really have breakthrough, right, uh, you got to tear down some barriers. You, you have to be vulnerable. You have to be open. You have to acknowledge truths. Uh, in order to have full reconciliation. Um, but I, I I do think that some of his sons are okay if they don't know the truth. But I do think that there's a, you know, we all know in order to, um, to have full repair and, uh, and a full change in the relationship dynamics that there has to be some truths that are that are acknowledged. Well, that's so interesting because you did say, I noticed, you knew. Now, will will that be disclosed in the film as you see it? I know the film isn't out yet, and I won't ask you to spoil it by telling us the answer, <laughs> but 
will the audience learn what the answer is? Here's what I know. Um, I know Martin is is ready to tell his story in full transparency. I know that he is a person of truth and integrity. Um, And that's one of the reasons why I'm so invested and I love, love Martin. I love this story. Um, I love the the history of it all. Um, So what I'm looking forward to is Martin and his family being liberated um, through, through the revealing or through the uh, the acknowledgement of of what happened that night and what led him into prison. Our guest, Shirley Vernay Williams, is a film director. Her documentary about Martin Thomas called A Break in Belonging will be released in 2021. We have a link to the trailer up on our website, and you'll find other information there about the film and how you can support it. Thanks very much for being my guest here on Criminal Injustice. That, I just love it. I love it. This was great. Thank you so much, David. Oh, this is great. Thank you. So much fun. The pleasure was mine. Now let's wind it up like we do on every episode with another edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly. And this episode of Lawyers Behaving Badly from Law 360 features lawyer and former head prosecutor Jeffrey Siegmeister of Live Oak, Florida, the former prosecutor in Florida's 3rd Judicial District, and... Yes, it's a twofer, lawyer Michael Osteen of Old Town, Florida. Yes, lawyer Siegmeister was Prosecutor Siegmeister, the elected prosecutor for his district, serving the good people of Florida's Third Circuit from 2013 to 2019. We have no information to indicate that former prosecutor Siegmeister did not enjoy his public service, that it was anything other than totally fulfilling. But at some point, and the indictment in the case indicates that this was probably in 2017 or a little earlier, former prosecutor Siegmeister began to feel the need for a little extra income. Or perhaps there was no need. Maybe it was just... I can do a few little favors here using the power I have and get paid in the bargain. I'll just sell my integrity in the legal operations of my office. Or maybe it was just greed, good old-fashioned greed and corruption. Who knows? What we do know is that at some point, Siegmeister and lawyer Osteen came up with an ingenious plan. Siegmeister would delay some of the official actions of his office, in this case, that being the use of the very favorable pretrial intervention program to resolve a case favorably against one of Osteen's clients. And Osteen would use that extra time to extort a big piece of extra money out of his client, 60000 bucks to be exact. This would, the client was told, help to resolve the case against him favorably. Then Osteen kicked back some of that money to Siegmeister through, get this, purchasing a bull from a herd of livestock 
Siegmeister owned for a big price, and also throwing Siegmeister a nice campaign contribution. Think of it, listeners. For the first time, a documented use of corrupt bullshit to purchase the source of real bullshit. Other charges against Siegmeister involve a deal with another defense attorney in which Siegmeister agreed to favorably resolve two DUI charges against a defendant if a family member of the defendant, who owned a company selling tractors, would give Siegmeister a big discount on a tractor. Done deal. I am certain that the drivers of the Third Judicial Circuit of Florida must feel just great about a two-time loser DUI defendant getting a sweet deal. And perhaps, just for good measure, Siegmeister could go out and drive the highways and byways of the area on his tractor, just to really screw up the safety of driving for all. The multi-count federal indictment against former prosecutor Siegmeister and one against Osteen resulted in the arrests of both men and will surely have more information on their cases soon. But in the meantime, hey, Florida bar authorities, got a couple for you here, ready for a suspension and probably a disbarment down the road. Just on that road, watch out for drunks and tractors. That's this edition of Lawyers Behaving Badly, and that wraps up another episode of Criminal Injustice. Subscribe to our Criminal Injustice RSS feed if you haven't already, and share us all over social media. Review us, please. A good review will help people find us. Check out our website, that is criminalinjusticepodcast.com, newly refurbished, for all of our interviews, our news items, and more stories of lawyers behaving badly. Got a question about the criminal legal system? Why don't you ask Dave and I'll see if I can give it a whack on the program. You can call in your question by leaving us your first name, where you're calling from in your brief question, at 412-407-3389. Again, 412-407-3389. Or you can go right to that website, again, criminalinjusticepodcast.com, and you'll see a form to fill out for your question. Yes, Ask Dave. Remember that we are a listener-supported program. If you like what you hear and you want to help, do that by going to patreon.com slash criminalinjustice. We really do appreciate that very much. Thanks for listening. I'm David Harris, and I'll be back with you next time. Since the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis in May of 2020, many governments, commissions, and organizations have come out with plans to change police departments. What does this look like when the leaders of a reform effort are African American, when they're from law enforcement, and they're female too? That's on the next episode of Criminal Injustice. Find it on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app or at criminalinjusticepodcast.com.